All right, we are beginning. This is uh, an episode. We're uh, in our Heroes of the Faith series, and we're looking at who is this, Dad, today? Uh, James George Deck. J.G. Deck. Now, he is a hymn writer. He was. He also became a missionary to New Zealand. Okay. To the Maori people. Nice. And how long was he a missionary for? Or, well, just, uh, you got it. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Deck ended up going to New Zealand around uh, 1856 and then continued on there until his death in 1884. He was actually born in 1807 uh, in England, and he wanted to uh, have a career in the military. His mother was a praying woman. She she was very earnest and gentle in dealing with the kids. She had eight children in the family. Eight kids. Yeah. So you and mom are like, I understand. We understand. We had nine, so. But Deck... Uh, recalls that she said she would never discipline the children without first praying with them. And and uh, so growing up, he had that behind him, a praying mother. And you guys would have been praying all the time if you did that with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did try to pray with you kids. But uh, Deck went to France in, when he was 17 years old and studied military disciplines under a former uh, general of Napoleon. Wow. And, yeah. And then he went to, to India under the East India Company, mainly a, a British company. And there uh, he, interestingly, lived a real ungodly life. And he later wrote about it, and I'll read you this poem, it's quite, quite good. Alas, in mad rebellion, I hoped there was no God. I cared not for his favor, though trembling at his rod. I wished his word a fable that warned of wrath to come. No God, my heart would mutter, no future, weal, or doom. And yet my mother taught me in tones so sweet and mild to know the holy pages even when I was a child. She read to me of Jesus, of all his grace and love, and sought with tears my blessing, his blessing from above. Oh, why did I so madly my mother's law forsake? Oh, why did I so basely God's righteous precepts break? Oh, why did I so blindly his warnings all despise and from the friend of sinners avert my heart and eyes. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's a poem he wrote. And when he was just, he went over there when he was just in, in his teens, but he was already trained to become an officer in the military. And when he was only 19, he got cholera, which can be quite fatal. It's cholera hits you quite quickly. I think they also called it galloping consumption, but it was uh, a disease which would cause you to vomit as well as have extreme diarrhea, and you'd be so quickly dehydrated that people would die from it within a couple days. Oh, wow. They, wow. They would, yeah, yeah, they could. Drain you. Yeah, so uh, 
in our day, we're wise to, uh, to the reasons for death, but um, uh, in those days, you very easily kill a man. So he returned to England after that bout with cholera, and his sister invited him to go out and hear a, an Anglican, Church of England man, who was a gospel preacher. At, and they were in, of course, the Church of England, the decks were, and he heard the gospel and came to Christ. Nice. As he, yeah, yeah. And, and then after that, um, he now, after being so humbled by his illness and weakness, he decided to go back to India. And interestingly, in India, he met Anthony Norris Groves. Now, Anthony Norris Groves is a book written about him in which it claims that he is the father of faith missions. The don't, don't ask people for money missions. Right, right. Okay. Don't, you don't go out with a promise of monetary support, but you're saying, I'm trusting the Lord, and I'm not going to be begging everyone for monetary support. And that was, of course, what Groves himself did. Hmm. He was a dentist from London who went out first to Baghdad, and I want to say it was around the year uh, 1827, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure on those dates. But he went down with a whole team of people. They traveled across Europe and then went dipped down into what we call the Middle East and worked in Baghdad. And at the time, there was revolution going on. One time a flood passed through the area and destroyed a lot of homes. And there, and there were plagues. Uh, his Grove's wife died. One of his children died. It was really a grim experience. And, it was, and they didn't see very much success. Man. But after that, Grove's, after spending three years in Baghdad, he went on to India. And in India, I think working around the city of Madras, now today called Chennai, and and um, Deck was working in the area around Madras. Nice. Now was was Deck with the East India Company, or was he a well evangelist at this point? No, no, yeah, he was very evangelistically minded. Now he connected with Christian officers that he met, and they got involved in a lot of evangelism. They had a lot of freedom to do that, and. And uh, the East India Company is a private corporation, but in a way backed by and supported by the British government and the British military. Okay. But that's the way I understand it. Nice. I think that's correct. Um, uh, but East India Company was really a private corporation, but they are mining the whole country of India for whatever they can get out of it. And, well, but you have to understand also, they do bring infrastructure. There are hospitals being built, there are schools being established, and uh, British legal standards are being applied in India. And also, the East India Company, one of the things that they would end up doing, and the Brits after them, would be to unite the country. Whereas you have all these sultanates and all these different fiefdoms, these different kind of kingdoms all throughout the country. Well, the Brits bring the bring it all together and turn it into what we call modern India. Okay, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, the the Indians um, 
have a pretty sore spot for the Brits because they really feel like the Brits uh, robbed the country. Oh, because so, under, uh, who's the guy? Gandhi. He, that, was, that was the big deal. Yeah. Well, Ga yeah, Gandhi was their first president there when they re received independence. Okay. But, and he agitated for independence using nonviolent means. And, and uh, all I have to say about this is the Brits did provide a lot of benefits to the people, but they also were very eagerly getting whatever they could on, for their benefit from the country. And, and uh, India is a very rich, materially rich country as far as natural resources. So, uh, uh, but that's, you know, the plain fact is that Deck happened to be in the military. He went there. Initially, he was thinking, I'll serve in the military, become some kind of a hero, come back and, and run for parliament in my district back in England. That's what he was hoping to do. Really? Yeah. But... What happened is he became a Christian, and and that changed everything. And he went back to India, connected with Christian officers, and started evangelizing the rank-and-file military guys. And at this time, he met Anthony Norris Groves. And Anthony Norris Groves was at one time described by an Anglican min, uh, a worker, Anglican clergyman, as the most dangerous man in India. Really? Wow. <laughs> because his views were so radical as far as, um, uh, first of all, he was anti-clericalism, anti the distinction of clergy and laity. Uh, his view of the church was radical as compared to the, the Anglican approach. And which was very much justified their existence as a denomination, and and also his just general practices, like his faith idea, uh, that was not the way the Anglicans run, ran things. And it turns out that no, Groves also believed in non-resistance. That he was he took the sayings of the Lord Jesus. If, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And he says, it's really not the job of the Christian to be involved in war. Hmm. <clears throat> and actually, there are many of the other believers at the time who, when they became Christians, would often leave their position in the military. It was very common in the 1800s wow. among Groves and his co-workers and friends. And and it might be that in Deck's contact with Groves, that's where Deck arrived at the same conclusion. I really shouldn't be in the military at all. I, I'm, I, I'm not prepared to go out and kill people uh, for the sake of the East India Company or the British government. And uh, this is really not a place for me. Others feel like they should do it and can do it with a good conscience. That's another thing. But for me, no. Interesting. So would, at that time, would a British missionary have been like, oh, our, you know, we're in danger, and call, call the military to come back them up? 
They might. They might. I'm, uh, if you're under a certain government, like if you had your home invaded, should you call 911? Should you call the police? Uh, we have a police force and we have a military for a reason. Mm -hmm. So it's not wrong to use them. I think the question is that is uh, at what point am I myself responsible? And I, I think Christians differ on this. For instance, uh, when when you think about the being on the police police force or in the military, you're not acting on your own. You're representing the government. Correct. Yeah. Right. So that would be different than me in my home or me in a in another social situation and somebody assaults me or attacks me that's a personal matter and and uh, it and many believers interpret the lord's sayings if someone smites you on the cheek turn to him the other also as as dealing with personal offense not the role of somebody who's in the military okay interesting okay so but I'm very sympathetic with somebody who says, well, if I join the military, they may send me to a place like Afghanistan or a place like Vietnam. And there, these people that I claim to love and want to win for Christ, I'm putting in my sights and I'm saying, I'm going to kill that guy. And, and uh, do I want to do that? Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for the military to act, but do I personally want to be the guy doing it? Is it right for me to do it? And this, and, is, and this is why none of your children join the military. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, didn't, I didn't keep anyone from joining the military. I didn't object to it. <laughs> but uh, Deck took on that kind of position, resigned his commission in as an officer in the British military, and then returned to England. And, and there he was involved in different enterprises, but eventually found himself getting totally devoted to going out and preaching the word. And he had a large family. His, his, the family he was raised in had eight children. He also had eight children. Go for it. Yeah, and he married a very godly woman. Her name was Alicia Field, and she was the daughter of a, of a clergyman by the name of Samuel Field. And when Deck returned from India, they needed to christen one, or he felt he needed to christen one of the kids. So... Uh, is that where you smash a wine bottle up against him? <laughs> no, no, ship? that's infant baptism. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That's different. You christen a ship by smacking a wine bottle, oh, okay. but you christen a child <laughs> with the use of water. Oh, okay. And at, after this christening, his father-in-law was complaining to him about these Baptists who didn't believe in infant baptism. And Deck was curious about this. What, what is it about these Baptists? So he started studying the Word to find out what the Bible had to say about infant baptism. 
and he was actually quite shocked to find out that it didn't have anything to say. And there was no evidence that in the New Testament they baptized babies. I know there are certain proof texts that people use, but can it be demonstrated clearly that, for instance, when Paul baptizes the household of the jailer in Philippi in Acts 16, that in that household there are infants. There's no evidence and no mention of ever baptizing infants. So he, by that, then sealed off his, that, that issue caused him to question his involvement in the Church of England and going along with the the prayer book. And the prayer book taught him from baptism. And if you're going to be a good Anglican, you go along with the prayer book. And he saw that it was a real conflict. Hmm. I can't believe both the Bible and the prayer book at the same time. So he launched out into this preaching work. And at the same time, he was writing this great poetry. Now, he his ministry in England occurred before the revival times of 18. 58, 59, and 60. It was a time of controversy. There were streams of thought that were converging or colliding with one another. For instance, in the 30s, the 1830s, there was a man named Edward Irving who arose, who championed a kind of Pentecostal way of thinking. And there's a book written about him called Edward Irving, the Forerunner of the Charismatic Movement. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of thinking, this this fascination with power and the miraculous, that that was going on. Then there was another movement, and and that was was, uh, a return to ritual. There's a man named John Henry Newman, another man named Pusey, who championed a return of the Anglicans to a more ritualistic type of uh, observance. And, and really, really moving more toward the Catholics' view. And John Henry Newman actually left the Anglican Church and was rewarded for doing it by the Pope, who ended up making him a cardinal. Really? Cardinal Newman. He became a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he was quite a prize. Wow, yeah. Yeah. They converted one from the church that split from them. Yeah, yeah. What a win. So so (laughs) the move back to traditionalism and to the rituals of the past, that was another movement. But then... There was the third thing going on, and that was a more pure approach to the study of the Word of God. We talk about a literal approach to the Bible, in which we take it at face value, and more in line with what the Reformers had talked about, sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our standard for all matters of faith and practice. We tend to think that Calvin and Luther and these men were inconsistent about the idea of sola scriptura 
because they did go along with a lot of stuff that the Roman Catholics had added on before them. So they were not very consistent about it, but they did teach the doctrine. And now in the 1800s, you have people who are not clergymen, but they've received a classical education in which, as a young person, you learn Latin, and if you succeed well, you go on to learn Greek. And then from there, you might even learn Hebrew. And so you have, you have people who are middle-class people in England, but people who, or maybe upper middle class, who have classical education and are able, with the tools that they have, of the knowledge of the language, the study of the Word of God. And, and that was the time that J.G. Deck lived in, a time when, and he was among a group of people who were very much wanting to return to the simplicity of the Word of God. Those who were of the more charismatic or Pentecostal way of thinking put a lot of stock in visions, dreams. They have the Word of God, but they also have this miraculous element, which is authoritative. And then the, the, uh, uh, those who are returning more to Catholicism, they have the Word of God. They say they believe the Word of God, but they also have a high regard for the ceremonies and the history of the church, as if that itself is authoritative. So they're not, they're not taking the Bible alone. Whereas this movement that sprang up in the 1800s was very much that way. Uh, I, I think the, the greatest thing to me when I look at J.G. Deck was in a lot of his poetry that he wrote, he, he expresses doctrine, biblical doctrine. He talks about the coming of Christ. So, so sound theology with music. Yeah, exactly. It's not enough to know your theology. You need to sing it. You need to be excited about it. Step up. Yeah. And that's the way he was. And so a lot of his songs were um, uh, reproduced in hymn books like Psalms and Hymns and Spiritual Songs. Um, hymns for the poor of the flock, uh, spiritual songs selected for the little flock, all these hymn books, hymns for the use of the Church of Christ. These are all uh, Christian hymn books that came out, and Dex hymns, he'd have many of his hymns, dozens of his hymns in these different song, song books. He had I'll, I'll read a, a few of the titles of some of his uh, better-known poetry. Abba, Father, we approach thee. That's one. Here's another one. It's about the coming of Christ. A little while our Lord shall come, and we shall wander here no more. <laughs> Lamb of God, our souls adore thee. And Jesus, we remember thee. These are all songs of worship, consecration, celebrating the Lord's return, all those prominent ideas. This is important because in our day, there's been a tendency to think that doctrine really doesn't matter. And I, 
I was converted right at the time of what was called the Jesus Movement, which happened in the, the late 1960s and early 70s. And a lot of the people that came out of that movement have very much a reductionist, or, or they did, have a very much reductionist view of doctrine. That is, let's boil it down to its most simple elements. And that's the kind of thing that was taught by groups like Campus Crusade. They produced the four spiritual laws, uh, in which there's a very slight reference to the problem of sin. Sin is simply missing out on God's wonderful plan for your life. Well, is sin only that? Or is there more to it? There's no mention of hell. Hell, I guess, would be that when you miss out on God's wonderful plan for your life, you go to a bad place. But it doesn't mention hell. Hell is not mentioned. So the wrath of God against sin and the heinousness, the wickedness of sin is downplayed. There's no mention of repentance there either. And you're talking the more more modern songs. That, that's what you're talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm the, saying that, that, that the when the Four Spiritual Laws was produced by Campus Crusade, that gospel tract became the most widely distributed gospel tract in history. Uh, maybe it's been superseded. Maybe somebody else has written another one, but I don't know. And though the way of thinking there is reductionist. So when D.L. Moody, who it was said of him, no one had greater influence on the 20th century church than D.L. Moody, but D.L. Moody never lived in the 20th century. He died in 1899, huh. right before the turn of the century. But it is true. He more influenced the 20th century church than anyone else. Wow. Yeah. He had amazing influence. And a lot of his training in the gospel came during the Civil War. He'd go down to a hospital where you have these, these, these American soldiers languishing in a hospital bed. And he'd walk up to them, give a very brief presentation of the gospel, and then he'd say, it's now or never. Get it. Get it. <laughs> so he did that. So... Well, and that was true for many of these guys because yeah. they were not going to live long. But you're, you're saying that like, do it right now, man. That yeah, yeah. And, and it's a very American approach. I mean, let's have action. We don't want to spend a lot of time on theory here. Let's just get this done. Let's yes. do it. So, so D.L. Moody championed that idea. Now, when you read his sermons, he really does present a lot of truth, a lot of really good doctrine in his but he, he, you could say that in his preaching, it was marked by a simplicity that was clearly being understood. Most people, they're not deep theologians, but they, there's some things they do understand. And so D.L. Moody showed us how to present the gospel in a very simple way. But that idea of avoiding technicalities, avoiding uh, uh, controverted points, avoiding doctrinal discussions, which seem to many of us to go nowhere. That tendency then has a, there's a downside because uh, in our generation, we've had a whole series of evangelists and speakers who are in such a hurry to overly simplify everything 
so that they're saying, well, this whole discussion of doctrine is just a big sidetrack. We don't want to get there. We don't want, to, we don't want that. And, and, and we just need to call people to action. And a, a great picture of this would be Billy Graham. Billy Graham, he had a magazine. It was called Decision Magazine. You call people to a point of decision. And when he would start a sermon, he would often say, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to do something. And then he would weave that sermon in such a way that it would all converge on a call to action. You need to do something. That is, you need to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to do it now. So, uh, this is all good. And I, and, I, and I don't think that Billy, in his preaching, avoided the, the mention of I know he didn't. He talked about sin and the heinousness of sin and, and probably talked about the judgment of hell, too. I, I've heard messages by him that did exactly that. But if we're in such an agitation that we have to be forever simplifying the message to, in a way, uh, streamline it for rapid distribution, there is a temptation to remove from the message those offensive parts. And that, I think, is exactly what happened with the Four Spiritual Laws Campus Crusades uh, booklet, where, well, this talk about hell, that's pretty counterproductive at this point. We, don't, we can bring that up later, but let's not right now. And, this, and going into the problem of sin, the ugliness of sin, or, or, or the judgment for sin, uh, God's wrath against it. Yeah, uh, I, I don't see that that's, that's going to help too much. And so they produced a, a wildly successful tract, which, and many people, I'm sure, have gotten converted using it. I'm yeah. absolutely sure. Because a lot of people, while they didn't read about those things about wrath or hell in that tract, they still believed in it. They're raised in churches where they do hear about those things. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, not a problem. But it, and it may be that the points that are being emphasized are the very points that they need to hear. So, but I also think that it's, uh, it's just like the parable Jesus told about going out and fishing and getting a big catch of fish. But out of those fish, you separate the good from the bad. And that is exactly what's going on in 20th century and now 21st century uh, evangelism, where you see masses of people responding to the gospel. Some countries, we have these people movements, large groups of people responding, of which some are genuinely, obviously saved, but there is also an element that are like those bad fish. Yeah, yeah. It's a mixture. Yeah. It's a mixture. So my point here is this, that a lot of our common, our, our today's Christians don't have any stomach for doctrinal discussion. Well, you get talking about something like Bible prophecy. Oh, that's, oh, we, we can't trouble ourselves. Oh, oh, 
We can't trouble ourselves uh, with Bible doctrine. You know, uh, I mean, who's to say who's right? And so it's the idea that the Bible never speaks clearly on matters that you can't know. There's a, a practical agnosticism going on where, well, if the Bible were really plain and clear, then we could know. And what, it, what that is really is a denial of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. If my understanding of the word is simply dependent on my spectacular experiences, you know, like I've had miraculous experiences, therefore I know, or I come from a church with superior traditions or better scholarship, then I and then I have a discussion with you and your your understanding is a little different. Well, my scholars are brighter than your scholars. Is that how we know? Is, is, is how do we know doctrine? Is it our superior tradition? Or is it our superior scholarship? Or our superior uh, uh, like uh, uh, you're from a church where they have these missionaries who've really sacrificed themselves. And so, and this is what they believed, and who's to question that? So, so is that how we know? Or, here's the other option. The Holy Spirit really does indwell every Christian, and he also indwells the church at large, and he is able to illumine the very pages of Scripture so that we can have a real understanding of church doctrine. And everybody isn't right. Hmm. You know, what I'm saying here is that there is a place for a real discussion of doctrine. And yeah, there are a lot of people who are totally mixed up on this point. You know, we, know we don't want to admit that. But it's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you follow? So, so um, everybody believes the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and the Holy Spirit indwells, but it's a, it's a doctrine which doesn't have much application. Yeah, yeah. You follow? Yeah. So in the 1800s, you had men like Deck, and they had this deep-seated conviction, God himself is our teacher, and we can know doctrine, and he's celebrating it. And now, yeah. now, did he write on this, or is this an analysis of his songs? It is looking at his songs. I I do think he did he did some writing. Uh, he um, he tells, for instance, the history of the evangelistic work that went on in New Zealand. He went there in 1856. Okay, he was a tender-hearted guy, and very soft. There was a doctrinal controversy, and I mentioned this controversy idea. There was a doctrinal thing that arose in his, in his neighborhood in England, and he found it very distressing. He had been out doing gospel work, seeing whole churches established, and, and uh, this controversy just broke him. And it was called the Bethesda question, but it had a... He was so sad. And so his health broke down. Really? Uh, I think like, he what, might have had a nervous breakdown over it. Was it like, did the angel stir the water or not? 
Did the angels... The pool of Bethesda, right? Oh, oh, no, no. No. (laughs) There was a church called Bethesda Chapel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was what it was. And they had it wasn't a, about the pool of Bethesda okay. in the Bible. <laughs> and they had some beef over... It was an di- issue concerning church discipline and a doctrinal matter. It was a real doctrinal issue, very similar to the current denial of impeccability. So if a lot of people, they think that Christ could have sinned. They say, he didn't sin, but he could have. Interesting. And that's a very commonly held opinion. It used to be that only a Pentecostal would ever say that Christ could have sinned. But now, in our day, it's very, very widely held. Really? Yeah. Man, I'm in a Well, ask people. Ask in your conversation. Could Jesus... Well, we know he didn't. We know he didn't. But could he have? Oh, that's a good... Well, that's a question. So, the the doctrine was stated there was... um, that Christ inherited Adam's nature. Well, Adam, because he he uh, was fallen, he was under the curse. Yeah. So, is Christ or was Christ under the curse? And the Bible says no man says, speaking by the Spirit, that Jesus is accursed. And. And so Christ himself was not under the curse of being somehow connected with Adam's fall. And, and this, is, of course, is uh, taught in our understanding of the virgin birth of Christ. He is born of a woman. He did not receive Adam's sinful nature, and he was not under the curse. He was free from the curse. Yep. Therefore... He's voluntarily able to bear the curse of our sins, not because he himself had to. And George Mueller, talking about this doctrine, he said, uh, if, the, if this uh, false doctrine were true, then even Jesus would have needed a Savior. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's I what George Mueller thought. That makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, doesn't it say in James, he is not tempted by evil, nor can he himself tempt anyone? No. No, He's not the author of sin. He cannot himself be tempted by evil. So what is the nature of the temptation in the wilderness then? Mm -hmm. So we use that word temptation different ways. Was there a real temptation presented? Well, yes, but were you tempted by it? And by that we mean... Was there something in you that answered to the temptation so that you say, yeah, I really want to go out and do that? Yeah. And so the Bible is saying Christ was not tempted in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Temptations were all there. Yeah. They're all being presented to him. But there's nothing in him that responded to it. Yeah. And in another place in John's gospel, he says that the wicked one comes unto him and finds nothing in him. What does that mean? There was no place that the enemy could get a foothold. Like when you wrestle with somebody, you find their weakness, and you manipulate that person. You hold them. And, and so the enemy was coming to attack the Lord at the time of his crucifixion. Yep. 
and he finds nothing in me. Hmm. Yeah, it's a statement of Christ's uh, holiness, but also his impeccability. Yeah. 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 So that that is. Uh, so that almost drove James G. Deck mad. Well, the that controversy. The, the results of the controversy. He was clear himself about what he believed. He wasn't wondering about that. Although uh, some of these people in this time of controversy took a poem that he'd written back in the 1830s or something and said, doesn't that, isn't there something there in that poem? And so he took the poem and retracted it. I mean, maybe he had it rewritten, but he said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I never meant to teach this by this poem. And those those kind of accusations, that kind of statement hurt him deeply. Yeah. A sensitive man. Man, so yeah, that's that's good if he, it pains him to see conflict. Like sometimes we, we like to, we like to sink our teeth into it a little bit. Yeah. But he, it pained him to be involved in it, which I think is what good. Yeah, yeah. And there's another place uh, where one of the Bible writers says, I have not, it was in one of the Psalms, I have not exercised myself in great matters. My heart, my soul is even like a weaned child. I just, and so Deck said, I, I don't want to be involved with all this wrangling, these doctrinal disputes. The doctrinal issues are there, and we can't avoid them. But it's but Deck did not enjoy the smell of the arena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the blood-soaked uh, sawdust and sand on the basis of the Colosseum. Yes. Yeah. No. And and he moved his whole family with him to New Zealand, which is as far from England as you can get. And there, it would, but it was um, uh, connected to England. It's part of the British Commonwealth. And he settled in the southern southern large island and did work amongst the indigenous people. Did a lot of evangelism, and his family continued on for many years, and they may still be there. Uh, they were very active in gospel work. And, and, and that's a happy thing, isn't it? Get away. Uh, yes, we may be called upon to speak to doctrinal issues. We need to know what we believe, and Deck did, and he celebrated the good things, but he didn't have a, a lust for controversy. We often have controversies arise. Let's be clear doctrine what we think, but let's not love an argument. Mm. And, uh, and what he did was a good thing. He said, I'm just gonna get involved in evangelism. I'm going to go out and serve the Lord, where people are not going to be fighting amongst themselves. And sometimes in times of controversy, people do not behave well. Yeah, yeah. And and so these people in New Zealand he worked among were the, the Maori. Maori people. Yeah. That sounds familiar. That's like uh, textbook tribal <laughs> island tattoo. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if... They are called are Polynesians, as such. If that's a term that would apply to them, 
but uh, yeah, they're they're a, a very remarkable people, and I, I believe that in New Zealand they have maintained their ethnic identity as such. They didn't just get amalgamated in with the 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 Brits and others who came to New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, but. Uh, the the thing to me is the fact that J.G. Deck really valued the fellowship of God's people. He had very clear ideas about what he believed. It's not like he loved an argument, but he was willing to state doctrine, believe doctrine, and, and promote it. And that's what we all should do. Very good. Amen. That's That's a wrap. Yeah.